0: Alright. Here we go. Hey, if you were here last week, uh, I wasn't. My wife and I were celebrating our 10-year anniversary and our uh, daughter who's coming on the way all at the same time, which is pretty cool. We were uh, out of the state last week and Tyler Wolf was willing to uh, pull all of the weight. I I love when we get to do things like this. I haven't got to do it here very much, but when I was in Kentucky, there would be times at the Sunday night service where I would lead the singing and the prayer and greet everybody and turn all the lights on and turn all the lights back off and preach and do it all. And it's kind of a fun throwback to uh, when pastors used to just have to do everything. And Tyler got to do that last week and I thought he did a pretty admirable job. So if you haven't had an opportunity uh, to thank him if you were here last week and you benefited from the way that he brought God's word to us, I'd encourage you to do that. Be bold and go for it. Don't, don't assume that other people are gonna thank him In many ways, preaching is a challenge because we don't get a ton of feedback when we do a good job. Uh, It's kind of like the slides in worship. Nobody really notices that they're there unless they don't change at the right time and then everybody looks around and wonders what's the deal. And so if you have an opportunity to encourage him uh, as a person who's, in my opinion, gotten much better in his preparation and presentation of God's word in the last five years, uh, I would encourage you to be an encouragement to him. What Tyler did for us last week is he brought a very short run of sermons in the book of Mark to a close. Uh, What we're going to do today is going to be sort of a one-off sermon. We do this annually, and I'll tell you about that in just a second, but so that you know where we're headed. Uh, Beginning next Sunday, for four Sundays, we're going to do our last spiritual practice of the year. And this is the one that I have been the most excited about this year in preparation. Uh, I have wished that we had done it earlier because I'm just kind of eager to get it out in front of you, I think it has the the real potential to be transformative for some of us in our lives, we're going to spend four weeks talking about how we practice forgiveness because forgiveness isn't something that becomes automatic when you become a Christian. Unfortunately, when you become a Christian, in some ways you become less forgiving of other people, sometimes, because you feel that you've achieved some sort of moral high ground, and then you begin to look down on other people. You've known Christians like this. Maybe you've even been a Christian like that. I think God's word pretty explicitly remedies that problem for us. So we're gonna do that for four weeks, beginning next Sunday. And then we're gonna be uh, observing the church season of Advent. So if you've never been a part of a church that did anything liturgical at all, you don't even know what liturgical means, that's okay. Advent is a global church calendar thing. It's the four Sundays before Christmas where the church chooses to hone in on the idea that Jesus was and is the long-awaited savior. And so we both look back and remember the first coming of Jesus at Christmas, But we also, from an application standpoint, talk about how Jesus is going to return, and that that influences our everyday decisions, our hope, our ability to endure suffering. And so we're going to throw back to uh, a sermon series that we did all the way back in 2019. It's my favorite way to do Advent. I think we've waited long enough that we can justify doing it again. We're going to walk through the book of Ruth for Advent this year, and it's going to be really rewarding and exciting, and I'm eager to do that with you. So that's where we're headed the rest of this year. I like to let you know where we're going so that you know what to expect. But to come back to today, what we're gonna do today is something that we try to do annually, which is talk a little bit about the way that we do covenant membership, the way that we practice community here at True North Church. Because beginning today, we enter into another short season on the church calendar of membership renewal at True North. If you've never been to a Starting Points, if you're brand new here, you may not know this already, but we do our membership on an annual basis. So once a year, we ask everybody, and that includes even me, even an elder, to consider whether or not we intend to covenant with the people of this church again for another year. And so that means no matter how long you've been a member here, we give you a chance every year in the fall to decide, do I still want to follow through on this commitment? Do I want to maybe renew this commitment or reapproach the commitment itself and what it requires of me and what it means? And it's helped us, I think, along with a lot of other decisions that we've made to stay a very healthy church who knows who its members are, whose members know each other, who know what's expected of one another. So what I wanna do for you today is I wanna try to reveal the Bible's perspective on why any of that is necessary and how it's actually good. Because when we think about church membership, for some of us, we probably think of it as a technicality. For some of us, we may have had legitimately a very bad experience at another church We're signing a membership form, gave other people access to our financial information, all of our trauma, our sexual history, etc., etc., etc. I've been around churches like that. That is not at all the expectation of this church. But I would understand if you come from that kind of background that if you hear a pastor talking about covenant membership, you may think to yourself, here we go again, and I want no part of this. What I want to try to help you understand is every group of Christians already has a covenant first to God, that's what makes us a Christian, but also a covenant to each other. Now, whether or not we're living up to that covenant or we're even aware of it, maybe not, and that's why I have some work to do with us today from God's word. But my objective is not to talk you into doing something that you've already decided that you don't want to do, or to make you guilty if you're sure that for whatever reason covenant membership is not on the table for you. What I want to do is simply communicate to you why with such confidence and certainty your elders... Can not only expect but demand that you be in community with one another if you intend to be or continue to be a covenant member of this church. We use one word to wrap up all of that. Everything I just said to you, we wrap up in one word. We say that we want to belong. We want to belong. My big idea, a point that you can write down if you're taking notes, is this. We're going to keep coming back to this idea today. When it comes to belonging, regenerated followers of Jesus, what do I mean by that? I mean people who've been born again, people who are full of the Spirit, people who've repented of their sins and are following Christ, that those people belong to Jesus, but they also belong to each other. And I think you get one of two things in churches sometimes, if we can just discuss the extremes on the ends of this kind of spectrum of church membership. You have churches that feel that they do belong to each other, But in that belonging to each other, the church as an organization or an entity or an establishment has become everything to these people. And so they're loyal to one another. They're loyal to the role that they play, the Sunday school class that they lead, the ministry that they help spearhead. But maybe along the way, as they've gotten more and more attached to the people or the idea or the concept or the building of the church maybe they've lost sight of that personal, intimate relationship with Jesus along the way. And maybe that church has drifted as it's been led by a pastor who's unqualified or a group of deacons maybe who have more power than they're supposed to have. I mean, there's a million ways that this can go. Maybe that church has actually stopped being a church and has maybe turned into a club, which is very different from a church. So that's one end of the spectrum, is people who know that they belong to each other but have lost sight of that personal connection to Jesus, the thing that drives the church, the presence of the Spirit in the church. On the other end of the spectrum, I think you get churches that are so individualistic that they're barely churches. They are groups of people who see themselves as individuals who've been saved by Jesus, who have to sort of tolerate a small group or tolerate a Sunday school class or tolerate a Sunday morning worship gathering like this. People who might argue that really it's everybody else who's making their church have problems. It's not them, it's all the other individuals with their individual problems. And so we find that to be, I do at least, find that to be relatively typical in the West. But there are churches that have gotten disconnected from Jesus, but are kind of hive mind, culty, working their way towards some other objective that's not Christ-likeness, or you have churches that are full of people who see themselves as disconnected individuals, dismembered members of a body, who don't know one another, aren't in personal contact, don't share any sense of community, and therefore are probably not growing. That's what you get with both extremes. It's the same outcome. You have people who either aren't growing because they're not focused on Christ or you have people who are focused on Christ but refuse to be in community and therefore there's nobody around them offering gifts, offering support, offering encouragement the way that Jesus designed. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was about 25 years old, uh, God gave my wife and I the opportunity to move into full-time ministry, which meant I didn't have to work any more side jobs to justify the time I was spending at church, which is what I had done prior to that. I'd been a part-time youth minister. So God gave us the chance to move out of the big city in Kentucky where we lived out to a small, rural place that was a lot of farmland, but they needed a family pastor and they wanted me to play that role. And so my wife and I prayed about that, we were excited, we talked to other people about whether it was a good idea and we decided to make that decision. We were gonna move out there, buy a house, jump into that church, and honestly, if God had not called us here, we'd probably still be there today. We were very happy at that church and thought that that was a good fit for our family. Two days before we made that move, my very best friend in the world, who lived in the same town that we did, the big city in Kentucky where we had been living, he asked me to have lunch with him. And the very last thing I expected that lunch to turn into was a conviction session, an opportunity for him to challenge my decision to move away, to challenge my decision to be a part of this new church. And yet that's exactly what it was. It wasn't encouraging. I wasn't very happy with him for raining on my parade. Here we are 48 hours away from packing our U-Haul and moving. But here was his concern. His concern was that because of the age of the people in that church, who were primarily in their 50s and 60s and older, that my wife and I, who were in our 20s, would not have any biblical community. That we would become isolated that we would become unknown to those people, that it would become too easy to hide when things were going wrong in our marriage, when we were practicing sin in secret, when we had resentment in our heart toward God, or we began to feel ourselves drifting away from that sort of love of God that all Christians need to motivate real Christian action. And as he shared this with me, because that idea of Christian community was for me at that point so foreign, I dismissed him outright. Even though he was my best friend, I sat back because he took me to lunch, so I had to sit there and listen to him talk, right? It would've been rude to let him buy me a slice of pizza and not let him get on his high horse about biblical community or whatever. And so I sat there and I listened and let him talk and went on and on and on. And then I told him, I disagreed with him, that I wasn't happy that he was raining on my parade. I didn't appreciate that at all. And then I went home to my wife and we laughed together about how silly it was that he would be that concerned about Community, whatever that means, and why that would be important to us. Because that's how humble people process criticism, right? They laugh about it and mock their friends. No, that's not good at all. So fast forward three years. We took the job. We made the move. And my friend was exactly right. Working at the church was great. I told you a second ago. We'd probably still be there today. But because I had never seen real biblical community, and I had never experienced people who worked in a church being required to participate in that biblical community, more on that in a minute, I was unaware of what we were missing, and I was a prime target to get get totally burnt out on church stuff, because here's what church became for me. Church became a group of people that had a bunch of expectations for me and my family, and if I could just meet those expectations, then those people would feel good about me, and I would feel good about me. And that's not really what a relationship is. That's not really how you wanna interact with your family. That's not probably the way that you want a dating relationship or a good friendship or a mutual work relationship to start. You don't want it to start in a place where it's built on you having to make somebody else happy or else, but that's what we were living through, and it was my own fault, because up to that point in my life, even though my dad had been and is still on staff at a church, even though we had been a part of either a member or had served on staff with, at that point, five or six different churches, never once had I seen anybody who was employed by the church be expected to participate in, not lead, they were good at leading, but they had not been expected to participate in whatever vehicle that church had for community, whether it be small groups, Sunday school, a Wednesday night class, something like that. I was used to ministers, and therefore I was used to Christians, because often as the pastor goes, so goes the church. I was used to Christians isolating themselves. I was used to Christians showing up for something like this on a Sunday morning with their makeup on and their like emotional and spiritual makeup on as well. That mask that shows other people that I have all the right answers and, oh yeah, I have a few problems because I want to seem like I'm human still, but I don't have any of the big problems. I don't have any of the really bad problems, the ones where maybe church discipline has to enter into the picture or something like that. So when my wife and I moved here to kind of bring this story to a close, we were exhausted, we were burnt out. I think we had continued to grow personally in Christ but we were, if you'll just allow me kind of a gross analogy, we had become emotionally and spiritually constipated. We were clogged up, and we would just, we become irritated, irritable, short of patience, over busy, trying to outserve this nagging sense of being unknown by doing more and more and more in the church. And thankfully, when we got here, part of the deal with you guys and with our elders was that I wasn't going to be allowed to be unknown. I wasn't going to be allowed to hide who I really am to not be known by you, to only share little snippets of stories and sermons that made it seem like everything was going really well and I sounded really healthy and really strong in my faith. I was gonna be expected, and it was gonna be demanded of me to do more than that, to be open, to have a life group, to be a part of a life group, not just to lead the biggest life group that's really just me preaching at another point in the week at somebody's house, but to actually be asked questions myself about who I am and how I am and what's going on and are things going okay? And to have to tell the truth about when my marriage is not doing well and when I've been selfish and when old habits have risen back to the top and reared their head again and I'm engaging in stuff that I shouldn't be, that's been required of me here. And like a person uh, would expect if you're emotionally constipated, with time and pressure, eventually that problem was solved. And my wife and I now have learned that regardless of where God leads us in life, which, don't worry, we're not planning on going anywhere anytime soon, we will always participate in Christian community because we've experienced it. We've tasted what it can mean to be a part of the body of Christ, to be engaged, to be known, to know, and that's what I want for you. I want those of you who are sitting in a place where I was back in 2016, to see from God's word that Christian community is not an optional add-on. It's not a deluxe package of Christianity that you can opt into on your Christianity packet when you decide to follow Jesus or not. It's actually at the core, and that whether or not you're in Christian community will play a massive role And whether God seems real to you, you're being used, you know who you are, you are finding fulfillment, your family is healthy, your kids are going to go the way that you want. It has less to do with your perfect performance, it has much more to do with whether you know other Christians fully and they fully know you. So with that said, that's the groundwork laid, we're going to move relatively quickly from here. I want to give you a theology for belonging, I want to show you a model for belonging, and then I want to give you a recipe for belonging. Those are the three places we're going to go today. I'm going to try to help you see the way that God sees the church, then I'm going to try to give you this sort of aspirational big picture idea of what the perfect church would look like, and then because none of us are part of that perfect church, I'm going to actually give you real steps to take that will help you begin moving toward Christian community if that's not something that you're currently engaging in. So we're going to start with the theology portion. I'm going to read through this quickly, but this would be worth you at least writing the reference down if you are taking notes today, and maybe going back and reading the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 12, which deals with the way that Christian people interact with one another. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to the early church in Corinth. He says, in the same way that the human body is one body and yet has many members, or you can think body parts. That's kind of the way that we learn anatomy, as we think in terms of fingers and hair and noses and hands and feet. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says all of the members of the human body, though they are many, are still one body. So too is Christ. What do you mean, Paul? That's kind of a big leap to make, right? I have a body. It has parts. What are you talking about? Jesus has a body that has body parts? Okay. I don't really know what that has to do with anything. Paul goes on to explain. He says it's in one spirit that we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews, whether Greeks, whether slaves, whether free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. For in fact, the body is not a single member or a single part, but it's many parts. If the foot were to say, so this is funny, this is like the only time Paul ever personifies your feet, but he says, if the foot were to speak and say, since I'm not a hand, then I am not a part of the body, the foot does not lose its membership in the body just because it's not happy that it's not a hand. And if the ear were to say, well, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, well, the ear doesn't lose its membership in the body because of that either. Now let's get really silly, Paul, verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, then what part would do the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, then what part would exercise the sense of smell? But as a matter of fact, God has placed each of the members in the body just as he decided. It might be worth memorizing verse 18 if you're a person who struggles with church membership. What did Paul just say? He says, as a matter of fact, God has done something. God has placed the members of the body as he has decided to do so. So that means that the local church is serious business in God's eyes. That whether you feel that this is true or not, God has placed you into a local church. Here and now, today, it's this one. And he did that with a purpose. He had meaning behind that. There's an objective to accomplish. There's a plan in place. Verse 19, but if they were all the same member, if they were all the same parts, where then would the body be? And that's rhetorical because Obviously, there would be no body if was just, we don't refer to a body as an ear. We would assume if we ever find just an ear laying around, there's a body somewhere else that's missing an ear, right? We wouldn't just go, that's a weird body. Hey, what's your name, buddy? Like, we would never interact with an ear like it's a person. We would say, that's just a part of who this person is. That's what Paul's implying. He says, so now, there are many members, but there is only one body. This is our theology of belonging. That we belong to each other in the same way that body parts belong to one another, Now, that doesn't mean that we lord things over each other. In fact, Jesus is explicit in the Gospels more than once. He tells his disciples that it's the way of the world to let authority equal power and power equal domineering. He says we don't do that. So this isn't about figuring out which body part you are and if you're the best body part and if that means you get to tell all the other body parts what to do. That's not what Paul's saying at all. But he's saying there is a sense of mutual ownership that we have Not that we tell each other what to do or we require each other to do or not do certain things or we try to control one another, but that we are accountable together for one mission and one goal. Think about the simple act of catching a baseball. How many parts of your body have to work in perfect conjunction for that ball to wind up in your mitt so that you've caught the ball? You have to move all, tons of motor function, all the muscles in your arm. If the ball is thrown poorly, like I would throw it, you would have to use your feet to run over to where the ball is and catch it. You have to use your eyes to track it. You might need to hear the person throwing it say, heads up, so it doesn't hit you in the head and hurt that part of your body. You also need your blood to stay in your body while you're moving. You need your muscles to not rip each other apart on their way to go catch the ball. And you might wanna smile at the end or say, nice throw, if the person threw the ball to you in a way that's helpful. If you've ever seen a toddler try to catch a ball, it's not natural to us. We have to learn, and those motor functions have to come online, and there's a period of time when that body is new and we don't know it well yet where it's awkward. So what I'm not trying to say to you, and I don't think Paul's point is, is that every local church has to be a perfectly uh, tuned, high-functioning ministry machine. Not at all, but we're Westerners. That's probably how we're tempted to interpret it, is that this has something to do with how effective or productive we can be. No, I don't think so. What Paul is saying is you are a body. You didn't get to decide that, God decided that for you. Now you can reject that idea, but if you reject that idea, you are at least rejecting a small part of God's plan for your life, and you ought not to expect for that to go very well for you. We don't get to tell God, well God, I know you say that we're supposed to be a part of a body, but I'm more of a loner. I've always really enjoyed my alone time better. I probably don't, I'm the exception to this. I don't really need to be a part of that. Church, I tried that for three years in Kentucky. That was a big part of my justification for not being interested in community, is I'd never had it before. It sounded like a hassle. It sounded irritating. It sounded uncomfortable. It sounded like I was gonna have to expose parts of myself that I didn't let anybody see, not even my wife. Why would I want a bunch of strangers to see that? Maybe you have that same mindset. The theology behind our intention of asking you to belong is that God says you already do. So it's not a question of do you or don't you, will you or won't you. The question is, are you gonna be on board with God's plan for your life or not? Are you gonna allow the spiritual gifts that God has given you to bless and help the church or not? Are you gonna stay a consumer that only takes, or are you gonna be a contributing part of the body who finds a way to fit in and serve and become a part of what it is that God is doing in a local context? So that's kind of the why. This is why, as elders, we think it's really important to require you to at least consider what Paul tells the church in Corinth is the bare minimum of church participation, to think about and to see yourself as a part of the body. Now, what does that look like lived out? Well, that brings us to our, excuse me, I skipped ahead, our model for belonging. What is the aspirational idea? If you've sat through starting points, you've heard this before. These couple of verses in in the second chapter of Acts are what we are hoping for and aiming for and driving toward. When we make decisions about life groups, when we start a new life group, when we identify new life group leaders, when we tell you, you need to go to a life group, we're hoping that by the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe you'll get a taste of what God gave to the earliest church in Jerusalem. This is Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Now, those who accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ were baptized. And on the day that's now known as Pentecost, about 3,000 people were added. Added to what? To the body of Christ. That's a lot of parts to take on all at one time. You would expect that to be chaotic, wouldn't you? If any organization grows by 3,000 people like that, it's almost always bad news in the short term. I mean, think about even when a new app comes out, right? We crash websites on Black Friday because we wanna buy too much stuff at one time. Anytime a group of people shows up too fast altogether, it's typically chaos. But the body of Christ is a little bit different. Because it has the spirit of God guiding and leading and connecting. So let's see what actually happens. Verse 42, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they were devoting themselves to fellowship. There's your two linchpins of life at True North Church. We're going to preach the word of God. We're going to do our darn best to make it clear and helpful and be faithful to Christian orthodoxy and what the word of God actually intends to say. We're not going to twist or manipulate that. And we're going to tell you that you need other people. That's fellowship. There you go. So there's a little bit of our model in play. But it goes on, it says they were also dedicated to the breaking of bread, they ate together, they were dedicated to prayer, and what happened to them as a result? Reverential awe. What that means is this sort of emotional, mental sense of God is doing something here. That came over this group of people. And many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they held everything in common. And they even began selling their property and their possessions and distributing the proceeds to everybody as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God, and having the goodwill of all the people. Somehow they were at peace with one another. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. Why? Because God loves to add people to his church when it looks like his church. God loves to add people to his body when his body is a body, when it's functioning when it's doing the bare minimum simplest version of Christianity, which simply means to live honestly in front of each other. When that's going on in a body of Christ, God sends people out of the woodwork into a church like that to find a way and a place to get connected and to be known and to know one another. This is absolutely aspirational, my friends, so don't let this, like if you read that and went like, man, my life group's got a long way to go. So does mine, so do all of them. You're not, okay, you're in good company, that's okay. But this is what we believe is possible. That's why this is a model, okay? This isn't the recipe. We'll get to the recipe in just a minute. But this is the model. This is the thing that Jesus has rolled out onto the warehouse floor at the big church expose to try to show you what's coming in the future of the church. This is the the Apple event of the year in the church and Jesus is revealing to you. This is what can be. This is what I've been building. This is what our product engineers in eternity have been working on for you from time before time. And here I am ready to give it to you. You just have to decide if you want in or not. Will you live this way among other people? Do you want a life that's at peace with other people, that's willing to sell what you have to to help the people that you love that are a part of your body, which is a mindset shift for many of us, to have what they need? Because here's what I know to be true. You have a physical body, I know that you do, I can see it, you're sitting there, I have one as well. Winter is here, you woke up this morning and it was probably anywhere between five and 16 degrees outside. It was about 12 degrees at my house and I had to use the auto start on my Jeep for the first morning this year so far, okay. Very, very cold. I dressed in a certain way because I knew it was going to be cold, and I didn't want to get frostbite, and I didn't want to die of hypothermia. You did too. You put a jacket on, maybe you wore a hat, gloves, you put on your boots. Very possibly, for many of us, this morning was one of the first mornings, or in the last couple of weeks this may have happened, where we had to go get our big uh, black bin with a yellow lid from Costco down out of the garage that has all the winter boots and the jackets and the hats in it. Yeah, I know. We do it too. And we had to dig through all that stuff and figure out, does this fit? Does it have holes? Oh yeah, I remember at the end of last year, I, I busted a hole in my boot and I needed to get new boots, but I haven't done that yet. When you know that winter is here or you know it's just around the corner and you know you're going to be cold, you evaluate what you need to keep your body safe. And even more than that, because most of us have enough money to do this, you figure out how to keep your body comfortable. If my friends, you woke up this morning and realized you didn't have any winter boots, You might have made it through this service, but I bet in the next 24 hours you're either going to order boots on Amazon or you're going to go down to the boot store and get some boots today. That's logical. You should do that. What you shouldn't do is just try to wear enough extra layers on your torso or enough extra pairs of gloves or enough extra hats on your head that maybe you can heat up the blood in your body and it'll circulate down into your feet and it'll save your feet from frostbite. That's not going to happen. You can't prioritize other parts of the body when a different part of the body has a need. This is the point that I'm trying to make to you. This is where the model of belonging begins to marry itself with the theology of belonging. If God says that we are like a human body, yet we refuse to treat ourselves like a human body, then bad things are going to happen. And it's not because God is vindictive. He's not going to judge us. It's the way the world has been set up to run. If you decide to just not wear shoes all winter and and wear a second jacket instead, you're probably still going to have to have your pinky toes amputated by mid-January. You're just not going to make it that far. For many of us, that would be tragic, it would be sad, it would be an emergency situation, and yet, there are times and places where parts of the body of Christ are suffering to the point that they either self-amputate or they just disappear, and it doesn't hit our radar at all. Nobody's alarm goes off. But isn't that the responsibility of the elders? Isn't that what the deacons exist to do? Oh, we would love to help, but we are not the body, we are the body, and you have to decide if you want to be a part of that or not. Most churches that I have been to, and churches that I'm aware of in the West, they don't require very much from their members because they're afraid that if they did that, you would just go to another church where it's easy. We have been willing to stand our ground at this church, and I'm not saying we're better than anybody else, I'm just telling you why we've done this because it's been unpopular in some ways. We've been willing to stand our ground on holding you to this standard, not because we want to be able to say to God, look at what a great church we built for you, God, but because we think it's good for you. It would be cruel of me to encourage you into a kind of passive community. It would be unkind for me to sit with you over lunch and say to you, oh yeah, everything seems like it's going great in your life, and yeah, you're isolated, and yeah, you don't really know anybody at the church, and nobody knows you, and you've had the same sin problems in your life since you were 15 years old, and you'll probably die with all those same sin problems in 60 years, but if that's working for you, I guess that's okay with me. That would be terrible. If what I know to be true is that you being an active contributing part of a body of Christ is part of the solution to the biggest problems that you have in your life, I should at least ask you to consider it. And so that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to ask you if you would allow this model, which seems so far removed from most of our Christian experience, just allow it to tell your imagination what could be. And then let that imagination work in conjunction with your understanding that it's what God expects. And hopefully you'll arrive at this point, where we're gonna go next, where you say, okay, it seems like God wants it to happen, it seems like it'd be pretty sweet if it could happen, but I don't know how to make it happen. What do I actually do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the recipe, you ready? Our recipe for belonging comes to us from 1 John 1, verses five through 10. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we wrapped up our series on the spiritual practice of simplicity, you'll know that these are the same verses that I used to demonstrate to you the way that a life of simplicity works. The reason I did that is because God uses all of Scripture to deal with all the problems that you have. So yes, this is both about how you live in community with one another, and it's also about how you live in simplicity. And it's also about how you live honestly, and it's also about how you differentiate yourself from other people. This Scripture deals with lots of problems. For our sake today, I want to draw out for you three quick steps you can take if you'd like to begin participating in real Christian community. Before we do that, let me read these verses to you beginning in verse 5. John says that this is the gospel message... That he and the other apostles have heard from Jesus and he now announces to you, church people, that God is light and in God there is no darkness at all. If what we say is that we have fellowship with God, yet we continue to walk in the darkness, we're liars. We're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. So there's your belonging, there's your Christian community. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all sin. If we say we don't bear the guilt of sin, which is how I was trying to practice my Christianity for over a decade of my life, we are deceiving ourselves. You know you can do that? You can actually fool yourself into thinking something's true that's not, and you'll live as if it is true. Paul says this is one easy way to do that, to just simply say that you don't bear the guilt of sin. We are de- if we do that, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and righteous forgiving us of our sins, and cleansing us from all unrighteousness, changing us, growing us, transforming us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and we show that his word is not in us. So three quick things that you can do that you probably won't like that much, but will be really, really good for your faith in Jesus Christ. The first is to stop. Stop disguising your sin. Stop cleaning it up. Stop giving your selfishness a bath in the way that you talk about yourself in life group, in the way that you share with other people that you're in community with. If you're coming to Coffee and Connections on Saturdays or you're participating in toddler time or women's group fitness or you're joining a men's group or you're in a life group on a weeknight or you're sitting next to people in church on a Sunday or you're teaching kids in a kids class, it's not your job to hide what's really going on. It is your job in the context of the body of Christ to confess what is true. Now. The other extreme is also true. You don't need to make up sin so that you fit in with everybody else, all right? Church isn't like the, the bad boys at, in high school who have to outdo one another by telling these grand tales that are all lies about who they slept with and what drugs they did and what they did over the weekend. You don't have to make your life seem worse to fit in here either, but just tell the truth. I'm sure you have a problem. You probably have five problems or 10 problems. In the context of the body of Christ, be willing to talk about those things. To say, I am making mistakes. I have become selfish. I am scared about the future. I'm resisting my spouse in lots of ways because I don't trust them because what they said to me and what they did to me or what it reminded me of that I lived through previously. Talk about those things. Do that in the context of community and then you're stopping that. Now start something. Now repentance comes into the picture. Okay, So confession happens early on in the scripture that we just read. Then repentance. Here's the difference between confession and repentance. Confession, you say to other Christians what's going on. Repentance is aimed at God. Because only God can change the way that you think. That's what the word repent means, to change your mind. Only he can do that, but you want to do that in front of the people that you've been confessing to. So again, we're not making a big show of this. This is why at this church we don't have you know, 20 or 30 minute altar calls in every service because it's really not a blessing to you to feel emotionally worked up and have to show this kind of intimate personal thing with God in front of a bunch of people that are strangers. But in the context of your life group, In your marriage, in your small Christian community that you hopefully are participating in, and you can get started on that soon if you're not already, you want to talk in front of other people to God about what's going on, and you want to share that process with them. Here are the steps I'm taking. Here's the way that I've been changing my own mind. Here's the reading I've been doing. Here are the people I'm accountable to. Maybe I'm accountable to you, a member of my small group. And I want you to know what God is doing in my life. Why? Why would we do these two things? So that we can feel guilty and be ashamed of ourselves and hate coming to church and stay beat down and become spiritually abused by pastors, right? No, not at all, because we expect to be restored, because we have faith in Jesus. We don't have faith in each other. You don't join a body because you really wanna be a part of a body. You join a body because Jesus says this is my body and you're part of my body and I'm putting you here. You do it out of loyalty to God, my friends. For some of us, practicing community will be a spiritual discipline. It will be like getting up and going to the gym and lifting the weights when we don't feel good and it doesn't seem like we're making any progress. It will require a commitment to be faithful, to stick it out, to stay in there, to trust that God is doing something important. If you will do that, you can expect eventually that you will find restoration. Because God is not a God who seeks to condemn us. He is a God who wants to heal and fix what is wrong. He is not our accuser. Our accuser, God's enemy, Satan, wants to tear us down, wants to keep us stuck, wants to tell us nothing will ever change. And one of the main tools he uses to do that is isolation. If he can get you alone, he can keep you stuck forever. But if you just let that little bit of pride that you have down, let that wall come down just a notch, just slightly lower the, the, uh, the window, right, the passenger window in the car of your life, just a little bit, and just, just let somebody see in and let you see out for a minute and see what God does with that. You should expect to be restored because the body of Christ is the context for transformation in our lives. Here's what that could look like. A long time ago, I read a book by a guy named Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning was an Anglican pastor and priest. He became an alcoholic. I think probably he had been an alcoholic a long time, but it became known that he was an alcoholic. Uh, And so he lost his ability to serve in that church. He lost his leadership position until such a time that he could become clean. And so Brennan took on this habit, even though he was a traveling speaker and teacher. Any city that he was ever in, on a Friday, he would find an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and he would go to it even a year decades after he had become, had gotten clean and sober he would continue to just sit in on these meetings he found it encouraging he found it to be sobering literally for him and you know figuratively to just keep his mind clear and so he tells this great story in a book that he wrote called the Ragamuffin Gospel about one particular AA meeting that he went to when he was on the road he was traveling i think he was in chicago and he found an AA meeting that was down in the basement of an old Catholic church, and it's exactly what you think. It's metal folding chairs, and half the lights don't work, and the coffee tastes like it's been brewed like three weeks ago, but everybody's there, and they're sitting in their chair, and they have their coffee, and they're getting up to the podium one at a time, and they're saying what you say when you're at a recovery meeting. Uh, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and and I'm an alcoholic. And everybody says, hi, so-and-so. And then you talk, you share how it's been. So one guy gets up in particular. We'll say his name is Gary. I don't know his name, I can't remember. Gary gets up, and he he goes through the motions. He says, hey, my name's Gary. I'm an alcoholic. Everybody says, hey, Gary. And then it just goes quiet, which Brennan immediately notices. I mean, I think he's kind of just been looking down into his nasty coffee for a while, and he realizes it's totally, like, stone-dead silent in the room. And he says in the book, you can hear the man grabbing the edges of the podium like this. I don't know if you can hear this or not, but just that the sound of him white-knuckling the edges of this thing. He's totally bent over, bowed up like I am, looking down, and he says... And prior to last weekend, I had been sober for 678 days. And then he tells the story about how that ended. Gary tells this group of people that he went to a family reunion. All of his family are alcoholics. They have been for generations. They mock him that he won't have a drink, that he's no fun. And for a long time, he's avoided them. But his father's fallen on poor health, and his brother called him and said, you really need to come this year because it could be the last one. And so Gary says, okay, I'm going to go. My family's going with me. I have support. My sponsor's going to check in with me constantly. I can call him if I'm tempted. And unfortunately, none of those guardrails worked for Gary that day. He says, I had two drinks, and I woke up four days later, and it's over. And I'm here to tell you that it's over. And Brennan Manning writes in this book about how he saw something in that meeting that at that point in his life he had never seen in a church before that the meeting was over immediately. And it wasn't over for the reason that you might think. It wasn't over because everybody was so mad at Gary and so fed up with this stupid Alcoholics Anonymous thing where people say they're going to live one way, but they choose to live another way, and who do they think they are? That's not why it ended. Nobody got up and left the room. They got up out of their chairs, and they walked to that man who was experiencing brokenness and was confessing it and obviously had a heart of repentance for what he had done, and they restored him. They embraced him for two or three minutes, which is a really long time in this situation, they just held him while he cried. Just four or five grown men, holding another grown man while he sat there and dealt with the reality of his decision. And then the meeting was done. They took their meeting down the road, they went to an all-night diner, they bought Gary dinner, everybody had pancakes and waffles, they told stories, they laughed together, they encouraged him. Yeah, here and there comments were made about how we could maybe get it right next time, but nobody was there to beat Gary up because he was wrong, why? because all of those people knew that they had the same problem he did. They were convinced, and out of that being convinced, out of seeing themselves clearly and telling themselves the truth, they were able to offer him something that unfortunately many churches know very little about, which is mercy. My friends, I tell you that story because you have a category for a group of people who can share life with one another and build one another up and accept that they all have problems. What's unfortunate is that mental category of yours belongs in the addiction community instead of in churches. We have a chance to change that, and it's not up to me. I can tell you every inspiring story I've ever heard in my life, and you'll feel really good about that for five or 10 minutes until you get in your car and your life comes storming back at you again. You have to decide, is it compelling enough that Jesus sees you as part of a body? Is what's on offer, is the model of that so good, so bright, so hopeful for you that you're willing to take the steps that you don't wanna take? I know you don't, because I don't either. I don't wanna confess. I don't like repenting, and I rarely expect to be restored. I generally expect to be attacked, and torn down, and made to feel shame, and embarrassed, and pushed back, and rejected, but what I can promise you is the thing that sets this, this church apart from every other group you've ever been a part of, is the living and active Holy Spirit of God, and God will honor your commitment and your faithfulness, and he will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So I want to pray that for you, and as we bow our heads to pray. Uh, just join me if you would in a spirit of longing asking God that he would do that he he would work in unity for us to make us one body that we could do what it is that he has for us to do in the world let's pray Father thank you for your word and thank you for your faithfulness to us we are not faithful to you far from it we have uh, nothing to offer I think the longer I'm a Christian the more convinced I become that there's very little if anything at all that's any good about me on my own I ask Father this week that you would give us the courage to take one small step toward community that we would not put the full burden of jumping headfirst into an Acts chapter 2 relationship on our shoulders to get that done in the next seven days. I'm type A. I know how that goes. I pray instead, God, that you would give us humility, that you would do inside change first, and that out of that inside change, some exterior change would come as a result. We trust you to do these things in our midst. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. I'm going to invite Jim Singleton up, and we're going to come to the Lord's table.